All right. Let us um, let us start with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive in. Father, God, we thank you so much, Lord, for this opportunity. We thank you so much for another day on your planet to do your will, Lord, and to learn who you are and to study your word together. And Lord, I just pray that this entire, um, this entire lesson would be just dedicated to your glory and your honor in the midst of the difficulty of the topic and the mystery of the topic. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I accidentally pressed the wrong button. I'll be right back. Actually, in fact, okay. So, um, let's take a brief moment before we get into it to review what we've been over so far. So, we started the first day with an intro to the topic, and then proving the biblical basis for this catechism teaching. And then the second time after that, we covered the fact that the only way to rightly understand God's actions in the world and to study His decrees is to first study His Word and understand who is this God who's who's making these decrees. And you understand, and, and then you can, as a, as a created, finite person, have a much more accurate assessment of things. And last week, uh, we considered that the decree of God is an area that is very difficult for us. It's very difficult for us in our limited mind, because God is incomprehensible. Okay, So what does incomprehensible mean again? Can somebody give me the kind of nuanced answer to that? Yeah, we are not able to fully grasp. It's not that we can't know anything. It's just that we can't know everything about Him. And so that, in, that is part of the reason why there's such an element of mystery involved in studying this stuff. Because we cannot know every single last thing. And so now we are up to speed up to today's lesson. And then let's quickly review the uh, catechism questions together. And so I'll read the question and you guys read the answer back, please. Uh, what are the decrees of God? And how does God execute His decrees? Amen. So now we uh, are moving on to today's lesson. And so there's a bit of a dilemma on our hands today. What we're going to deal with is the difficulty and the problem of evil and suffering in relation to God's decrees. And try to consider that in a biblical manner. So previously in the series, as well as in the uh, prior one before that, we studied who God is. Okay, So we saw that God, the Bible says that God is always good, just, true, and wise, amongst many other wonderful characteristics. And the Bible also says... For His glory, God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. It says both of those things together. And so this raises a question in our minds. 
which we have already touched on at several points, but to which I will now dedicate this whole lesson to, which is if God has foreordained whatsoever has come to pass, and our experience as human beings says that some things that come to pass are not good things, like, for instance, death or sin or murder, tornadoes, etc., then can we still say that God is good, right? Can we still say that God is good in light of this? And so this is a very complicated and mysterious and difficult topic and also one where a lot of people take a lot of missteps, so I want to guard us against that. But it's also one of the questions that causes a lot of people to rebel against God, right? It's a, it's a question that causes a lot of people to actually reject having faith in Him, it makes them not want to follow and worship the God of the Bible. And perhaps you know somebody who has this objection, or perhaps even perhaps one of you struggles with this doubt yourself. You might even today be sitting here wondering about something in your life and struggling about this exact thing. So this is just a little brief aside. Uh, but the fact, that we, the fact that we perceive things as evil, the fact that we perceive things as sinful, the fact that we perceive things as bad in this world, it, it, it can be used as an argument, like a, an objection that people give for why they don't believe in God. But you can also flip that coin over and, and use that as an argument for why you should believe in God. Because we would not be able to tell what is evil, what is good. We wouldn't have a standard for what is right and what is wrong if there wasn't a God, right? If there wasn't an objective, higher power, higher being who's deciding what is right and what is wrong, then we could not have these... Um, we could not have this sort of inner awareness that there's certain things that are just so evil and so wrong. And so we take issue with evil and pain and suffering because God exists, not because he doesn't exist. But that was just a little side note. The real point is just wrestling with this kind of dilemma that we have today, which is going to kind of lead us down a path, but we're going to have to wrestle with this topic of evil and suffering in the world. And so the first thing I want to do is I want to just quickly again, this is all like review. Every lesson we kind of review some stuff and other stuff when it's relevant. But um, what I want to do is I want to quickly just address the fact that there's a right and a wrong way to go about answering this dilemma. There's a right and a wrong way to go about this uh, study, right? And so I got five points for sort of guidelines or tips for how we can do this in a way that's honoring to God and in a way that um, will hopefully lead us to a valuable or uh, impactful position. So in dealing with this dilemma, it's important to remember our position. Okay, our position is that we are God's creatures. And so we are called to worship God because he's our creator, first of all. And that means that we're supposed to submit to his providence, okay? The Bible is kind of our guideline in that respect, saying when we don't get to pick the outcome, we are the ones who must submit to God's providence. And then, and then the second point is that we must proceed with the utmost wisdom and caution when we're dealing with a question like this, okay? Because what we're doing here, in no uncertain terms, is we're actually taking a moment to evaluate and consider the character of God, to evaluate the character of the God who made us. And this is not to be done lightly. This is not something to be done flippantly. This is not to be done casually. There's a lot of room for error. There's a lot of room to accuse God of things that He never did, that He has never done, that he's not, He is not like. You can make so many missteps. You can go so far beyond the boundaries of what Scripture lets us go 
if we uh, do not proceed wisely and with caution when we're dealing with a question like this. And if we're going to do this in a way that's fruitful and a way that's actually valuable, then what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to rely on God's Word. Okay, we're going to have to rely not on our own instinct or our own opinion or our own experiences. I repeat this pretty much every lesson. But so many of the objections that we hear don't come from God's Word. They come from instincts and experiences and personal opinions about who God should be and what He should be like. Not based on His Word. So we're going to base it on His Word today. And... Um, Also, hopefully you can pick up by now, but also just throughout the whole lesson that I do not really intend to defend God. Okay, Um, I do not think it's reasonable. It's quite ridiculous, in fact, for me as a fickle little human being to sit here and try to defend him. But what I am, I don't even think I don't even think that's really our role. But God is more than capable of defending himself in his work. He's more than capable of defending himself in our experience. So. I am just trying to show the biblical teaching and give some clarity to what the Bible teaches on a matter that's very mysterious to us as creatures. Okay, that's all I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to defend God. So let's not make the mistake of thinking that that's what's going on. And then the last thing is, like I talked about last week, is that we need to leave some room for mystery in this topic. It is a mysterious topic. It's critical to note that this lesson is not intended to give a perfect explanation that satisfies all of our curiosities. And it is definitely one of the most mysterious aspects. Evil and suffering and God's sovereignty, it's it's beyond us. So it's important to realize now as we move on that though we don't have all the answers, we also will not leave this lesson, hopefully it will not leave this lesson with any room, biblically, to bring any accusation against God or to question His goodness. That's our aim. We're just going to leave this thing with a good biblical explanation of how this works, and we're not going to have any room to accuse God of anything wrong. And that's, the, that's where we're headed. And so the first thing we're going to do is we're going to walk through the biblical teaching of this topic, like I always try to do, and just see what, is the, what does the Bible have to say concerning this dilemma? Okay, what does the Bible have to say about this? And so we'll have three like kind of main headings on this regard. That'll set us up for then we'll evaluate it at the end and make a few conclusions when we get there. So the first thing we need to know is that evil and suffering in the world are because of sin. Okay, They're because of human sin. That's what the Bible always says. So God has decreed that these things would come to pass. But at the end of the day, the biblical narrative, the biblical account, it blames evil and suffering in the world on sin. So the biblical account has always maintained that the sin of Satan and the demons followed by the sin of mankind has resulted in the world being the way that it is. So this is not to say that God didn't know or decree that this would happen. It is just to say that the Bible blames the fall. The Bible blames the fall not on God, but on sin. Okay, not on God, but on humans. And so what is the impact? What is the product or what is the fruit of the fall? In the world. And that's what we're going to look at here quickly. And this is a wonderful list that's provided by John Currid in his book called Why Do I Suffer? Which, by the way, is a very small book. Uh, if you're not that big of a fan of reading, it's a very small book and it, and it really summarizes this whole question. It's, it's, a bit, it's a very good book on a biblical response to evil and suffering. And I think it would benefit us if we re- went and read it. But it gives a helpful assessment of all the aspects that 
that sin had, the impacts that it had on the world. So these uh, next six things are what we'll look at first. So the first thing is because of their sin, the man and the woman were alienated from God. Okay, they were alienated from God. Does anybody know what alienated means? Just give a guess if you don't know exactly what it means. It's fine. Yeah, basically, alienated is like to be, to be caused to feel isolated or separated. Exactly, John. So they, um, they were alienated from God. In other words, they were isolated and separated from God because of sin. And Genesis 3 verse 8 says they hid themselves from God, right? So that clearly shows that aspect. Then the next thing is that because of their sin, the man and the woman were alienated from each other. So in Genesis 3 verse 7, it says that they were naked and ashamed before each other. So they were not in the same kind of harmonious, wonderful relationship to one another because of sin, their sin. And obviously you can imagine every one of these steps, every one of these six things I'm talking about, is, a, is something that produces an immense amount of suffering, a tremendous amount of evil, tremendous amount of hardship in the world. So the second one, they're alienated from each other. Think even of Cain and Abel. Immediately after the fall, Cain and Abel are, are fighting. Cain is trying to kill Abel, right? And immediately after the fall, we have this humans alienated from each other. Then after that, um, because of their sin, the man and the woman are alienated from the Garden of Eden. They're, they're actually alienated from paradise. They're not allowed in paradise anymore. So they used to be in a place where there was no evil. There was no suffering. There was no hardship whatsoever. But in fact, at the, in Genesis 3.24, it says they're cast out and they're never allowed to come back into that paradise um, in their sinful and fallen state. And then the next thing is that because of their sin, the man and the woman were alienated from eternal life. Okay, so Genesis 2 verse 17 says, If they sin, they will surely die. Okay, if they sin, they will surely die, which means that they will not live in that state, in that body, in that way that they were forever. Okay, so Genesis 3.19 also adds to this aspect that they're alienated from eternal life because it says, To dust you shall return. So you're made of dust. You're supposed to keep on living. But because you sin, to dust you're going to return. That's the curse that God has put on it. And Romans 6.23 very clearly teaches this lesson. It says the wages of sin is death. Right? The wages of sin is death. And so we're actually alienated from life eternal as well. And the fifth thing, this one's maybe a little bit more difficult to understand right away, is that because of their sin, the man and the woman were alienated from themselves. They're alienated from themselves, which is a difficult concept for us sometimes. But... In the act of sinning, the image of God in man suffered harm. The image of what a human being or what a man truly should be or what a woman truly is intended to be, that image suffered harm. If you don't believe that this is the case, which some people have tried to say that the image of God did not suffer harm, that the image of God was not defiled in any respect, then you just have to look to the Scriptures because throughout Scripture there's this message clearly taught that we, now that we're in a state of sin, need to be brought back into the fullness of the image of God. We need to be brought back into being exactly like Christ. And I'll prove it to you by looking at 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. It says, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So the fact is here, 
They're being transformed into the image of God, right? And you don't have to be transformed into something that you already fully are, okay? But we have to put a word of warning. You don't want to say that the image of God is completely wiped out, is completely gone. Because then people will say, well, what's wrong with abortion? What's wrong with a whole bunch of other theological and social things that we like to do to humans that, that God has forbidden? The image of God is not completely wiped out, but it is defiled. It is, it is broken. Okay? And so basically what we have here is that humans are actually alienated from themselves. And maybe you feel this way. You feel this inner turmoil. You don't understand even yourself clearly. You don't understand your own life or your own heart clearly as you ought to in a, in a state of harmony. Well, that's an interesting form of suffering that's come into the world, right? Because of this. Because now all of a sudden there's this inner war, this thing that never... Adam and Eve never had that because they were not alienated from themselves, from their proper understanding of themselves. That's where a lot of things like... There's other reasons too, but that's where a lot of things like depression and that kind of suffering comes from. Because you don't, you don't understand how, to, how your own self works. You don't know how to cope in this world sometimes because of sin. It's because of sin that these things have entered in. And so the last one is a bit different. And that is that not only was this alienation to do with mankind, okay, to do with like man and God, man and themselves, each other, not only that, but it actually has to do with nature, okay, it has to do with creation, it has to do with all the world. Remember when I was talking about tornadoes and hurricanes and all kinds of other unfortunate things that come and wreak, wreak havoc and destruction? In Genesis 3, verse 17 to 18, it shows that the ground is cursed. So the earth itself is cursed because of mankind's sin. It says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. And to add to this, um, this message of the fact that this sin has had this impact on the creation, on the whole of nature, Paul writes in Romans 8.20 and says, the whole of creation is subject to futility. All of creation is subject to futility because of who? Because first of all, because of our human sin, but also because of God subjecting it to a curse for a time. God has acted to subject the earth uh, to a curse for a time as a punishment for man's fall, for man's sin. So all of this... Our first point, our, our whole first point is just to say the Bible very clearly teaches that the impact on the world that is evil, that is suffering, is a result of human sin. So we must always realize that God and the Bible don't let humans off the hook for sin. They don't let humans off the hook for suffering. They don't let humans... The Bible does not let um, humans off the hook at all. And it's, in, and it's important to note that the very evil and suffering that humans experience is always either their own fault... Or in some way the fault of another human being like them. That's kind of a crazy thought. Even the fact that you can get into some kind of a tragic accident is actually a result of Adam's fall. Right? Is a result of Adam's sin. And maybe even some of the problems you have in your life are a direct result of your own sin. And so the Bible never lets us off the hook. Sin is the cause of evil and suffering in the world in spite of the fact that God has decreed it to come to pass, which, which leads us into the next point. 
Okay, the next point deals with this again. And we've done this, we've, we've looked at this many times. That, I know that quote looks kind of freaky right now, but don't worry. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's just a very brief point to reiterate what I've been stressing this entire time in case you still haven't fully accepted the fact that the Bible teaches this. The Bible teaches that God has decreed everything that comes to pass. Everything that occurs, God has decreed in eternity. And so this quote from John Piper is pretty helpful just because I found it and it's a super quick summary of this doctrine again. Okay. It says, God works all things after the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1.11. Okay, that's our starting point. This all things includes the fall of sparrows. Matthew 10.29. The rolling of dice. Proverbs 16.33. The slaughter of his people, Psalm 44, 11. The decisions of kings, Proverbs 21, 1. The failing of sight, Exodus 4, 11. The sickness of children, 2 Samuel 12, 14. The loss and gain of money, 1 Samuel 2, verse 7. The suffering of saints, 1 Peter 4, 19. The completion of travel plans, James 4, 15. The persecution of Christians, Hebrews 12, 4 through 7. The repentance of souls, 2 Timothy 2, verse 25. The gift of faith, Philippians 1, verse 29. The pursuit of holiness, Philippians 3, verse 12 to 13. The growth of believers, Hebrews 6, verse 3. The giving of life and the taking of death, 1 Samuel 2, verse 6. And then this one is huge. The crucifixion of his son. The crucifixion of his own son. Acts 4 verse 27 to 28. And so we have this. Maybe not relieving any of our difficulty. There's sin in the world. It's a result of human sin. It's because of the fall. And at the same time we know that God has told us. He so many times. Countless times. So many more verses than you could ever imagine. Has proven that he actually decrees whatsoever comes to pass. And in the midst of all this, we want to repeat again that the Bible says concerning this, that God is always good and he never sins. Okay, he's always good and he never sins. So God is faithful, just and upright. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 says all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So God Literally tells us in scripture, he is without iniquity. He's without any sin. He's never done wrong. He's never done a single thing wrong in spite of the fact that everything, even the hard things that we, that we looked at in that previous quote, everything is under his decree. And the next one is James 1.13, which is a very helpful passage in this respect. It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So God himself is not even tempting you with evil. Satan is the one who's the tempter. James 1 verse 13 really helps us in that respect. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Like That is, that is amazingly helpful in understanding how to answer this difficult problem that we have because of our limitedness, because of our limited minds, our finite minds and our limited uh, perspective. So knowing that people would have difficulty with this, the London Baptist Confession of Faith states it 
uh, very clearly what I'm trying to communicate to you all. It says, God has decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. And then adds this phrase, it says, yet thereby God is neither the author of sin, nor has fellowship with any therein. He is not the author of sin. He does not sin. And he does not even have fellowship with people who do sin. He does not. He is in no respect the author of sin. And so now a way that kind of harmonizes this to some extent, brings it all together, um, is to look at a quick, uh, actually a pretty long quote from a man named Charles Hodge that is a good summary of kind of everything I've been saying. Again, like I said at the beginning, it's not like we're trying to give you some totally satisfactory answer that's in completely devoid of God's revelation, devoid of His Holy Spirit, is going to make you feel content, to make you feel happy with the fact that there's evil and suffering in the world. What I'm trying to show you is that what the Bible teaches about evil and suffering in the world and how we as Christians are to understand that process and how we are supposed to move forward in light of it. And so this quote is pretty helpful. It says, It may be and doubtless is infinitely wise and just in God to permit the occurrence of sin and to adopt a plan of which sin is a certain consequence or element. Yet, as he neither causes sin, as we saw in our previous point, nor tempts men to its commission, as we proved from Scripture, he is neither its author or approver. He sees and knows that higher ends will be accomplished by its admission. This is key. By its admission than by its exclusion. A higher aim, a higher end is accomplished in the world because of the inclusion of sin. That a perfect exhibition of his infinite perfections will be thereby effected. That God will show forth who he is. And therefore, for the highest reason, he decrees that it shall occur through the free choice of responsible agents. Our great ground of confidence, however, is the assurance that the judge of all the earth must do right. Sin is and God is. Therefore, the occurrence of sin must be consistent with his nature. And as its occurrence cannot have been unforeseen or undesigned. In other words, because God is who he is, he he could not have not known this was going to happen. He could not have not decreed this to come to pass. But it concludes here, God's purpose or decree that it should occur must be consistent with his holiness. It must be consistent with his holiness. And so you can see how this helps wrap it all together. It's not, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a longer quote, but I hope it's fairly clear. We went through it quite slowly and hopefully you're able to follow along with kind of what he's trying to communicate. I'm going to draw out four quick kind of uh, takeaways that we can take out of this quote that are very helpful in dealing with our problem, our dilemma, so to speak. When it comes to sin in the world, It's very important to realize that decreeing that sin will happen and allowing it to happen is not the same thing as doing it yourself. Okay, so God decrees that sin will happen in eternity past. And he, he knew it would happen. Nothing comes as a surprise to God. But we have to be careful not to say then, therefore, that means he is the one who is doing it himself. 
Okay, so there are agents, free choice of responsible agents in the world who are acting in God's world that he decreed. And so in light of that, they go, they sin. God is allowing sin to take place, but he himself has never sinned. The Bible teaches that God permits sin. Okay, he permits it. In other words, he allows it to happen, but does not ever do it. He never does it himself. This is an important, really important line to draw. And it's, again, it's mysterious. It's difficult for us to wrap our heads around that. But that's the facts. That's what the Bible teaches us about our God. And it's in line. It's consistent with His holiness. At the last line there, what God is, who He is, the way that He has revealed Himself in regard to this dilemma is that it's consistent with His holiness. The second thing we can take out of the quote is that um, God allows this for the highest reason. Right there around the middle, it says, For the highest reason, God decrees that it shall occur through the free choice of responsible agents. So everything that he's doing is for the highest reason. It is namely for his own glory and as a perfect exhibition of his infinite perfections. You see that perfect exhibition of his infinite perfections? That seems like a very difficult line to understand maybe for some of us. But it's not really too bad. It just basically is saying because God has allowed sin. He's allowed suffering ultimately because the main point of creation, the main point of everything God does is A, His own glory, and B, that in the world, in the world He's created, the world that we know as it is today, God has a plan to show forth His mercy, to show forth His glory, to show forth His peace, to show forth His Everything, every single attribute that he has is going to be put on display, right? A perfect exhibition, you can think of it as a little display or a uh, whatever, you, whatever you want to think of it as. But it's just like a, an act or a display of all of his infinite perfections. And so the highest end of all of this, the whole reason for all of this is the highest end, which is God's glory. Um, And then the third thing we should take away is that at the end of the day, you may have noticed that in this quote, as well as in the entire lesson so far, all of our problems or mystery are not solved. Okay, all of our problems, all the mystery, all the difficulty we might have with this dilemma are not solved. But we put our confidence in God's word and who he says he is, right? Who he says he is like in, in here, trusting that he is holy. It says there, sin is and God is. Therefore, the occurrence of sin must be consistent with his nature. And as its occurrence cannot have been unforeseen or undesigned, God's purpose or decree that it should occur must be consistent with his holiness, must be consistent with his teaching in scripture. And so at the end of the day, God reveals to us in his word um, and and he shows us a guide or a, a few angles at which to approach this problem. But he does not remove all the mystery and all the difficulty. Because I talked about that last time, right? There's this element of faith required. There's this element of mystery required. There's this element of having to actually believe what God says. Having to trust that he's truly just, truly good, even in this sinful and fallen world. That element would be removed if God did not have the world being the way that he is, ultimately for his own glory. And so then this last thing is that... um, this, que- this dilemma and, and this answer I've given is not the kind of thing that satisfies people who do not trust God. 
right? It's not the kind of thing that's going to satisfy or make an unbeliever, someone who rejects God, someone who hates God. It's not the kind of thing that's going to bring them to faith in God or that's going to make them feel good when they suffer or going to help them with their answer to their difficulty. But the reality is that if God has revealed himself to you or to me, then what actually becomes our major or our biggest priority is his glory, right? So we become saved. We get converted. If you're truly a believer, now your own pain and suffering is not a bigger priority than God's glory. So remember it said God's glory is the highest end. The highest reason is God's glory. The highest reason is that he displays himself in the world. So when we as Christians become Christians, it says in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, that we have experienced the light of God shining in our heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So in that moment of being converted, the glory of Jesus Christ becomes uh, evident to you. And all of a sudden your priorities shift. You go from wanting the world to wanting God. You go from wanting your own glory to wanting God's glory. And suddenly now you have this priority that's in line with God's priority for evil and suffering. And all of a sudden, you might not be able to understand it. You might be in the most difficult time of suffering of your life. But that does not mean that you cannot go through it. Because you know that the God who shone His glory in your heart, the God who's revealed Himself to you, is a good God, is a God who's holy, is a God who you can trust, is a God who sent His Son to die on the cross for you, a sinner, right? And so then God's glory is our highest priority too. We actually... um, we actually start to align ourselves exactly with what God's will is. And so if you do not have trust in God and you do not know Him, if you have not seen His glory and experienced His love and grace, then you will reject Him because you don't think His glory is the highest reason, like Hodge was saying. You don't think His glory is the highest reason in comparison to your own suffering and difficulty. Oh, I thought you, I thought you were asking a question, Dan. Um, so yeah, then we now kind of have this, hopefully this quote helps us to kind of put these things together. So sin is the, uh, the suffering in the world, the evil in the world is a result of human sin. God has decreed whatsoever comes to pass. And at the same time, God is not the author of evil. And his highest aim, his highest end, the highest goal of everything he does is his own glory. And so from there, we can now conclude and kind of even say a few more things that might even solidify the biblical case, increase the biblical argument for this even a little bit stronger. So these are the four things I'm going to conclude with. The first is that the one who accuses God is always a hypocrite. The person who accuses God rejects God because of the fact that there's evil and suffering in the world. They say that God is evil. They say that God commits sin. They, commit, they say that God is the author of all the evil and suffering in the world. The person who does that is actually a massive hypocrite. So because... In light of the fact that human sin against the holy God is the cause of all the death and decay in the world, and in light of the fact that each and every person that accuses and questions God is his creature and has violated his law, so they themselves have sinned. They have participated in causing sin. They have participated in causing suffering. And they have participated in causing decay in the world. Every human being does that. Every, every human being is born into sin since Adam. And so it is an outrageous level of hypocritical pride at the end of the day for any of us in our arrogance to accuse God, to raise a fist up to God and say, 
How dare you make the world that you, the way that you did? Or to rebel against Him? Because at the end of the day, God has allowed the world to be um, the way that it is. And He's allowed you to exist, right? He's allowed us to exist as sinners. Which is very interesting because if you're raising a fist up to God and telling Him, No God, you created a wrong world. You shouldn't have done this. You're not good. The way that God would fix the world would be to get rid of you. Okay? That's an interesting thought. If you're the hypocrite raising your fist up to God, the way that God fixes a world full of sin and suffering, if you're a sinner, is to get rid of you. It's not to get rid of Him. Okay, so that's an interesting kind of angle to take. Just remember that. The person who's raising their fist up to God, the person who's rejecting Him on this basis, you show sympathy to people like that if they've been through something horrible. Something that's come from someone else. Something that happened to them when they're five years old. You show sympathy to them. You show the love of Christ to them. You share the gospel with them. You love them. But at the end of the day, that even the worst possible sin that could have happened to you from another person is no reason to reject the holy, just, good, and, fr- and kind and loving God, right? No, no sin is a, is, a, is a warrant for that, especially if you yourself are a sinner. And then the second one here is that how can one accuse the Lord who is acquainted with grief and sorrow? And how can you accuse the Lord um, when He Himself has sent His Son, the Father has sent the Son into the world to be acquainted with grief, to be acquainted with evil, to be acquainted with sin, to be acquainted with suffering, not Himself committing sin, but himself experiencing sin against himself, right? So that accusation against God just doesn't, doesn't stick as well. You know, if God was all distant and removed and he created the world the way that it is, and he never sent his son into that world to himself suffer, then maybe your argument would stick a little bit better, right? But you're coming up against God and you're, and you're throwing up a, a fist towards God and accusing him and attacking him, when in fact he himself is not detached from this. He's not distant from sin and suffering. He's intimately and closely walking with His people and He sympathizes with them by sending His Son to take on flesh, right? To take on actual human experience. So God achieves His highest purpose, which is His glory, not by being grand and aloof and distantly removed from sin and suffering, but by the Father Himself sending His only begotten Son, the God-man, to come to take on flesh, to dwell with us to experience weakness, pain, and misery. And so another thing about this that's unbelievable is that in Romans 5.10 it says that while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. So God sent His Son into the world to experience pain, to experience suffering, to be mocked and scorned and ridiculed and hated by the people who are His enemies. We are His enemies. Sinful human beings are His enemies. And in light of that, it's just very... You can see how that just takes a lot of weight off this accusation. It makes this dilemma seem a lot less of a massive dilemma than it really is. Because you, you, just, don't, you just don't accuse. You just don't hate. You just don't um, reject a, a being, a God that's that kind, right? That's like that. That actually experiences these things himself. That's so, that's so kind as to come down to our level and experience ridicule from his enemies, and then save those very people. Save Paul, who's his persecutor, who persecutes his church. So now I'm just going to close with two quick verses. We're kind of running out of time, I think. But 
Um, these two verses kind of encapsulate what I'm getting at. Romans 9, verse 20, it says, um, in, in relation to what I've said prior to how God, he, he relates to us in our pain and our suffering, and, and we're hypocrites. We're hypocrites if we reject Him and we turn against Him because of evil and suffering. In light of this, we pretty quickly realize that we don't have any right to speak an accusation against Him, right? And that's why Romans 9, 20 says, But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall the one formed say to the one who formed him, Why have you made me like this? Who are you, O man, who are you, O woman, to talk back to God? You don't question Him. We don't do that. That's not our role as creatures. It is unacceptable to raise our fist up to our Creator and judge Him and accuse Him. And then, it's worth noting, it's okay to ask humble, honest questions of God. That's not the same thing as rejecting Him. That's not the same thing as raising a fist and accusing Him. It's important for us to wrestle with these things, to work through them, to seek to learn as much as we can, to grow through the providence that God has allowed to take place in our life, the the hard things that have come to pass. But it's not okay for us to rebel against Him, right? We We don't accuse God. Who are we to ask? Who are we to talk back to God? Who are we to accuse Him of anything? And then the last verse is, is Revelations 21 verse 4. So remembering that the same decree of God that currently allows sin and suffering to take place is the decree that also serves as a guarantee that there will be a day when all of the sin and suffering will come to an end. Right? The same decree that's now currently allowing us to suffer and have difficult times is the same decree that has guaranteed that there will be a day when there will be peace. And this is all because of the work of Jesus Christ, right? This is all because of what He's done on the cross. This is the same Jesus Christ who never sinned, but yet He suffered way more severely than any of us ever would. He bore the full weight of the sins of so many people. He bore uh, the wrath of God upon himself, right, on our behalf. This is an amazing way to look at it. If you realize that Jesus Christ came into this sinful and broken world and he is setting us up for a world to come which is going to be free of all this evil, free of all this pain, that should give us a tremendous amount of comfort, right? That should give us a tremendous amount of encouragement as we walk through this life. As Revelations 21 verse 4, finally get to the actual verse, says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. So that's our hope we have to look forward to. God has decreed that we right now are languishing, we're sojourning, we're suffering for Christ, for His glory. But He's also decreed that one day that's all going to be gone. And we'll be able to participate. All those broken things that I talked about at the beginning that we lost because of our sin, because of the fall of Adam, all of those things will be restored again. We won't have any of this inner turmoil. We won't have any hatred between each other. We won't have any distance between us and our, and our loving God anymore. And it's all because of Jesus Christ. So that's the, that's the end of the lesson. Let's uh, ask somebody to pray. Adam, do you mind praying for us, brother? Father God, I want to thank you for this uh, word today. Thank you for this time of fellowship. And thank you for uh, this lesson. I pray that we can recognize uh, just how good you are. I pray that this uh, lesson can uh, pierce into our hearts and 
and applies to us, God. That we know that even though you have preordained all these things, it does not make you the author of sin. We know there's a great mystery in this, uh, and for our understanding of how could these two things exist, God? Uh, that we can still recognize once again just how good you are that you sent your son Christ to die on the cross for us. And that we can look forward to that coming day where we will no longer have to suffer but have that eternal glory with you. Thank you for that. Father, I wish to pray for the, uh, the continuation of this Lord's Day as we go into the worship service. I pray that we can be edified in that and that we can lift our hearts unto you, that we can praise you and glorify you, and that we can receive your, your word with happy and grateful hearts. And I pray that as uh, we participate in the Lord's effort today, that uh, we can set aside all distractions and we can focus uh, on that means of grace. I pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Adam.